If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Tuning in and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Miss Barbecue. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Steve Pride. Happy, Happy Pride. Pride. Hi, guys. Yes. I went down there and saw the banners. I was so touched that they were honoring me, but. Oh, wait, it wasn't me, so... No. That's no fun. But oh. you went down there. Yes, I did, I did. I got to march in the transparent with the transparent float, and it was amazing. And did you post lots of pictures? No, but I got tagged in a lot of them. <gasps> you did. Even if I wasn't even in them, the people tagged me anyway. What is people like to that? tag and poke <laughs> you all the time on Facebook. I know, I don't get that. Or uh, poke I'm going to go to your page and see all those pictures that okay. people tagged of you. <laughs> well, so tonight, I'll talk with Jessica Stern, Executive Director of Eagle Herc, the International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission. We'll share the interviews from the creator and cast of the film Eat With Me. Which got bumped last week. Sorry about that. And we got a double feature, y'all, because we also have the story on the documentary Limited Partnership. Which you can see tonight as part of the Independent Lens series on your local PBS station. Nice. But after you've heard this show. And then you can go. Yeah. It's like at yeah. 10 o'clock. Yes, yeah. set your DVR. And to celebrate Pride, we have a very special reading from Tales of the City author, you know who he is, Armistead Maupin. But first, the national and international news from This Way Out. I'm Michael LeBeau. And I'm Carol Myers. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending June 13th, 2015. In a direct challenge to Chancellor Angela Merkel, Germany's upper house of parliament, the Bundesrat approved a resolution this week calling for civil marriage equality and adoption rights for same-gender couples. The Bundesrat is controlled by 16 state governments and has a left-wing majority. The state premier of Rhineland-Pfalz, Malu Dreyer, described the move as overdue, noting that it was also a Christian value to want to commit to a single-life partner. In response to the landslide vote in the Roman Catholic Republic of Ireland to open civil marriage to lesbian and gay couples, a spokesperson for Merkel said last week that marriage equality was not the goal of this government. And because Merkel's right-wing Christian Democratic Union Christian Social Union Coalition controls the lower house, the Bundestag, it seems unlikely that the marriage equality proposal will go any further. Germany currently allows gay and lesbian couples to enter into registered life partnerships that provide some marital benefits, but they're far from equal to civil marriage. A civil partnerships bill that's similar to the one in Germany is making progress in Italy. 
The country's lower house of parliament approved a motion on January 10th submitted by the ruling Democratic Party, which commits the government to enacting a civil partnerships law for same-gender couples. It's the first time such a motion has been approved in the Italian parliament. A number of previous efforts failed. But that landslide marriage equality vote in Ireland prompted Prime Minister Matteo Renzi and Justice Minister Andrea Orlando to join a growing chorus demanding the legal recognition of cohabiting same-gender couples. Socially conservative and heavily Roman Catholic Italy is the only country in Western Europe that doesn't recognize either the civil marriages or civil partnerships of lesbian and gay couples. Greece's left-wing government introduced a measure on June 10th to establish civil unions for same-gender couples. Two years ago, the European Court of Human Rights condemned the country for excluding lesbian and gay couples from the original civil unions legislation. The bill will extend insurance, taxation, and inheritance rights to same-gender couples, but not adoption. Greece's ruling Syriza party has a majority in parliament, so the proposal is expected to pass easily when it comes up for vote in July. The civil marriages of some 500 gay and lesbian couples in the U.S. state of Arkansas were upheld this week. The state's ban on civil marriage equality was struck down by a federal court in May. About 500 couples got marriage licenses before the Arkansas Attorney General filed an appeal less than a week later that put the ruling on hold. Pulaski County Circuit Judge Wendell Griffin decided this week that the licenses are valid, calling the refusal by the state's Republican administration to recognize them shameless disrespect for fundamental fairness and equality. The ruling ordered the state to allow the couples to file joint state income tax returns and enroll as couples in state health insurance plans, among a host of other benefits. Arkansas Attorney General Leslie Rutledge condemned the ruling, insisting that these marriages do not fall within the state's definition of marriage as between one man and one woman, I am evaluating the ruling, she added, and will determine the best path forward to protect the state's interest. Any action she takes would probably be a waste of state taxpayer money. The U.S. Supreme Court is expected to resolve the issue of nationwide marriage equality sometime this month. A ban on fostering and adoption by gays and lesbians that goes back to the days of Anita Bryant and the anti-queer Dade County, Florida, Save Our Children campaign of the late 1970s will officially be gone on July 1st. Republican Governor Rick Scott signed a bill this week to remove the language from state statutes. Even though the ban was on the books for decades, it hasn't been enforced since a federal judge ruled it was unconstitutional in 2010 a decision that was upheld by the 3rd U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. The GOP-dominated legislature failed to pass legislation earlier this year that would have allowed private adoption agencies to refuse to serve same-gender couples on religious grounds. Similar efforts have been rejected outright or gone nowhere in several other U.S. states, with the exceptions this week of Michigan and North Carolina. We'll have more about those setbacks later in the program on most of these same stations. In other news this week, transgender people in the South American nation of Colombia are no longer required to undergo reassignment surgery to be legally recognized in their preferred gender. They only have to submit a declaration of their gender identity to a notary. Colombia's ministers of justice and interior jointly signed an executive order on June 5th that brought the new policy into effect immediately. Individuals were previously required to undergo psychiatric or physical examinations before gaining legal recognition of their chosen gender. 
Justice Minister Yassid Reyes said in a media statement that the old policy was profoundly invasive of privacy rights and rooted in unacceptable prejudice. The construction of sexual and gender identity is an issue that doesn't depend on biology. Ten transgender people received their new documents in a ceremony in Bogota on June 9th. Colombia is now one of only four countries to allow people to change their gender this way on official documents. The others are Argentina, Denmark, and Malta. A similar proposal is being considered in Ireland. Pride is busting out all over in this traditional month of June. Several hundred LGBT people and their allies joined the second annual Pride Parade in downtown Nicosia, the capital of the East Mediterranean island nation of Cyprus, on June 6th. The Australian, Austrian, British, and U.S. ambassadors to Cyprus marched in solidarity. Interior Minister Socrates Hasikos also participated, saying that he was confident that Parliament would approve the government's recently introduced civil partnership bill. Last year's inaugural march was marred by a small group of Orthodox Christian protesters who attempted to disrupt the event, but there were no such confrontations this year. The Cyprus Mail reported that the vice president of the Movement for a Federal Cyprus, Yorgos Pitas, delivered the most fiery speech at the rally, saying that, We are here to help pry open the windows and doors of Cyprus so that everyone can be free. But it won't be easy, he warned. We see that the carriers of darkness, the eunuchs of thought, react, shout obscenities, and curse. But that's okay. It's their problem. We are here to tell them that in the society we dream of, there is a place for them, too. An estimated 180,000 people crowded into the streets of Tel Aviv to cap off the seaside Israeli city's week-long pride celebration with its 16th annual parade on June 12th. As the Associated Press reported it, Thousands of bare-chested, muscular men, drag queens in heavy makeup and high heels, women in colorful balloon costumes, and others partied at what's by far the largest such event in the Middle East. More than two million people converged on Sao Paulo's Avenida Paulista on June 7th in colorful outfits, on fabulously decorated floats, or on the sidelines for the largest pride parade in Brazil, if not the world. The LGBT community has seen significant gains in the socially conservative Roman Catholic country of 202 million people since the first Sao Paulo Pride Parade in 1997. But while Brazil enacted marriage equality in May 2013, widespread discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity remains a serious problem. Human rights groups report that the country sees homophobic or transphobic attacks on almost a daily basis. Some 326 LGBT people were murder victims last year, and that's just the reported number. President Dilma Rousseff has pledged to support moves to criminalize such attacks, but her government faces opposition from right-wing evangelical Christian politicians, some of whom organized a counter-parade of their own on the 7th. And finally, the Planting Peace and Equality House, also known as the Rainbow House, opened in 2013 across the street from the hideously homophobic Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas. The Christian fundamentalist cult vowed a picket this week after Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling reportedly endorsed the imaginary marriage of her gay character, Hogwarts headmaster Albus Dumbledore, and Lord of the Rings wizard Gandalf, who of course was portrayed by out-actor Sir Ian McKellen. 
Well, actors playing the two wizards were joined in fantasy matrimony at the Rainbow Colored House on June 9th. But the Westboro crowd was still trying to recover from their recent protest of Ireland's marriage equality landslide that went horribly wrong. They inadvertently declared their hatred for the Ivory Coast before realizing that the flags they displayed on placards to protest the Irish marriage equality had the same colors as the Ivory Coast's, but were backwards. Ireland's flag has, from left to right, green, white, and orange stripes. The flags they displayed had stripes from left to right that were orange, white, and green, the Ivory Coast flag. Oops! That's News Wrap for the week ending June 13, 2015. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Carol Myers. And I'm Michael LeBeau. You can hear all 30 minutes of the latest This Way Out, including more News Wrap, on Stitcher Radio On Demand on iTunes or at thiswayout.org. You know, 40 years ago, the fuse on the same-sex marriage debate was lit by a couple in Boulder, Colorado, one of whom is a past newsreader for This Way Out's newscast. So Steve talks to former Boulder County clerk Clella Rorex and Tony Sullivan to discuss the ripple effect of their brave action all those years ago. In the mid-1970s, Richard Adams and his husband, Tony Sullivan, filed the first federal lawsuit seeking equal treatment for a same-sex marriage in U.S. history. Yes, I did say husband, and I did say the 70s. I'm Cleela Rorix, former county clerk from Boulder County, Boulder, Colorado. And I'm Anthony Sullivan, the surviving spouse of Richard Adams. I'm Tom Miller. I'm the producer and director of Limited Partnership, a 40-year love story of Richard Adams and Tony Sullivan, who met in the early 70s and got legally married in Boulder, Colorado in 1975. But one of the interesting things is that Tony was from Australia, and so they used that marriage license to have Tony apply for a green card. This 40-year saga began in the Boulder County Clerk's Office. In March of 75, I had two guys come to my office asking for a marriage license. They were both from Colorado Springs. And I did not give them an immediate answer. I spoke to our district attorney and got a legal opinion on whether our Colorado marriage code would prohibit giving them a license. At the time, it did not. It was not addressed as an issue in the Colorado marriage code that a marriage had to be between a man and a woman. So he left it up to me to make the decision, and I decided that I was going to give them a marriage license. And I subsequently went on to issue five more licenses, one of them being for Tony and Richard. At the time, when I issued those licenses, I did it just simply because I felt like it was the right thing to do. I did not know anyone in the gay community. I had never really knowingly met anyone who was gay or lesbian. I was kind of a budding feminist, and we were fighting for our own rights. Our paths at that time didn't cross yet with the gay rights movement. The women's movement did not. So it ended up being a very lonely decision for many, many years. I was never contacted by anyone in the gay community, really, after I issued the license 
all hell broke loose in many areas of the country. I received a lot of hate mail, mail from entire church congregations telling me I was creating a Sodom and Gomorrah. And the local paper editorialized against me, telling me I was going to lower the property value of Boulder since all these gay people are going to flock to town to live. Those six marriage licenses were never addressed legally. Later, Colorado went on to revise the marriage code, but they didn't negate those licenses. And then even later, Colorado went on to have a constitutional ban. And just as Tony and Richard did, I feel that that marriage license that they have is a valid marriage license and that they should have been awarded the rights that they have been seeking for all of these years. Tony, how did you and Richard end up in Cleela's office? We had realized that we wanted to be together. And the immigration law at the time was that gay people weren't even allowed into the country as tourists, that if you'd been naturalized, you could be stripped of your citizenship and deported, and you couldn't apply for a green card. And um, the injustice of this, before we really realized how it affected us, outraged us. And I remember we had a conversation where we said, someone's got to change this, it's terrible. And then, of course, when you say things like that, you're inevitably hit with the thing, wait a sec, we qualify for that, but we, you know, sort of same token said, wait a sec, let's back off. And we made a decision to wait six months before we decide that we would uh, take a stand. And in that six months, of course, the realization that we did not want to be separated, which was the main thing, sunk in deeper and deeper. And at the end of six months, we said, well, what should we do about this? So we decided that we would take a stand. And um, we went to Troy Perry, who had the Metropolitan Community Church, who was performing what was known as Holy Unions. He's been left out of the history a bit, and it's wrong, because before Stonewall, he was talking about gay relationships. People need to remember that back in that time, our movement was fighting just for the right to not be thrown into jail for being gay. Relationships wasn't even on the agenda. So we went to Troy and approached him and said that we wanted to get a holy union and go to the courts on the grounds of freedom of religion, like the Native Americans did with peyote. And so we had the Holy Union, we were uh, planning what to do, and then suddenly we read in The Advocate, the gay publication, about the marriages in Boulder, Colorado. And Richard and I, you know, immediately, oh, this looks right. We waited like a month, because it was over a period of time that this was going on, and Johnny Carson was joking on it on television at night and things. And we thought, well, if Colorado has allowed this to go on this length of time when it's receiving high publicity, this must be for real because with law, you've got to have a reasonable expectation that the law is, you know, that it's not just a gimmick. So in good faith, we flew to Boulder, Colorado, went to Keeler's office, got issued a marriage license. We were so nervous about the law possibly changing, we took our own ministers with us to getting the license and got the actually married in the courthouse corridor outside <laughs> Keeler's office and took the license straight back in so that there'd be no chance of it not being received. After the marriage, you applied for citizenship as Richard's spouse. How did the U.S. government respond? The letter was delivered on a Saturday morning, and the postperson, when I opened it, was still there. We had to sign for it. And I read it, and uh, I thought, no, this can't be real. 
And so I showed it to the post person and said, does this say what I think it says? He looked at it and just gave a silent nod. So I gave it to Richard. And I suppose I was a little unkind when he read it. I turned around and said, it's your government. The letter said that the petition for me to stay here as the spouse of a US citizen had been turned down because, quote, you have failed to establish that a bona fide marital relationship can exist between two faggots, close quote. Richard and Tony's battle to stay together led them to flee the U.S., and as Richard was not allowed immigration to Tony's homeland due to an antiquated law in Australia, the couple found themselves without a country, floating around Europe, eventually sneaking back home across the U.S. border with Mexico. Their complex and moving story is beautifully recounted in the documentary Limited Partnership. But before you can say that was then and this is now, according to documentarian Tom Miller. There are some states that have gay marriage, and there are many cases in district courts now in all parts of the country where the question of marriage equality is going on, but ultimately has to end up in the Supreme Court again. And I just feel it's really important for people to understand from a personal point of view how it affects gay and lesbian couples and that this is not over until all states have equal marriage rights. Find more information about the film online at limitedpartnershipmovie.com. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. And again, Limited Partnership will have its TV premiere tonight on the series Independent Lens on PBS, most of your PBS stations, around 10 o'clock, I think. So tune in and hear Tony's story. This is so timely because we're waiting for the Supreme Court's ruling on marriage that hopefully will just put this to bed, at least legally. We stand on so many shoulders. Yeah, yeah we do. And it is people yeah, like do. this. We think it's all just been fought the last few years, but it's these kinds of people that have got us thinking and feeling brave enough to push for this in our in our lives. And we have to honor them. They started the ball rolling. Forty years ago, there were holy unions. Holy unions. I mean, that, that that just stands out in my head already. I, I, I want to see the rest of this documentary oh, yeah. so much. Yeah, we, we tend to forget that churches actually can only do weddings. Only the government can, can sanctify a marriage. Exactly. It's yeah. a contract. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Well, anyway, let's move on to something a little smaller but no less moving. My chat with the writer, director, and stars of the film Eat With Me. Eat With Me is a sweet, witty, and charming movie about a gay man running a floundering Chinese restaurant while trying to figure out his love life, which certainly isn't devoid of men, but none of them are sticking around. And then things really become complex when his mother turns up on his doorstep and asks to stay for a while. Or to summarize another way... Hi, I'm David Au. I'm the writer-director of Eat With Me. The film is about an Asian-American woman who decided to leave her husband one night and came to the city to live with his son, who's gay. And the two of them trying to rekindle the relationship that was lost for a number of years, and they use food and cooking to bond again and sort of find each other again. It's sort of a journey for both of them to find themselves and rediscover themselves. So you bought this place, huh? That's right. You have a big mortgage to pay? Yep. You don't clean very much, do you? How can you live like this? Did you get robbed? 
Yeah, and they're just right of the fridge. Then what do you eat? I eat at the restaurant. So you're a cook, but you don't cook. How can you eat that stuff at the restaurant? No wonder you don't look very good. Mom, everything is fine. It's all fine. What inspired this story? One day, my mom actually called me on the phone. She told me that my dad cut off his wedding ring in the middle of the night for no reason. And all he said was just giving him a big headache. And my mom just laughed it off and nothing had happened. And life went on. They're still married. But when I heard that story, it was just so bizarre that I was thinking, like, what if my mom decided to leave him? What if that actually meant a lot more than just a headache? And she just decided to leave him completely. And what would her life journey become? And so this whole film was sort of based on that imagination of how the woman can take herself and rediscover herself and find a new life if she decided to make a change for herself. We are joined by the actors who play the mother and the son at the heart of the film. Sharon Omi and I play Emma. I was drawn to the story. Actually, it's been a long process. David started out with the story about his mother and the ring almost, God, longer than 10 years ago, and he did a short. And I read the synopsis of it, and I loved the way he wrote the characters. So I joined the project then, and then David decided to develop it into a feature length. And Teddy and I both did readings throughout the process, and... uh, for me, it's just a miraculous story of of a woman that people can discover themselves no matter what age they are. That's what really drew me to the story. Ted H.N. Culver, I play Elliot. I met David at the audition for Eat With Me a long time ago, as you said, and we got to do the short, which was an amazing experience. I had such a great time playing with these characters then, and so now to do the feature version and be able to dive into these characters more deeply and just really take our time with it and just discover every little nuance about them was a dream. It was fantastic. So, You know, it was interesting for me to play this character because I am a mother and I could never, ever imagine having a falling out with my child because they came out to me. And so, you know, in trying to find the truth of this character, I went to a lot of PFLAG meetings and I... I was just astounded by the journeys that these parents went on. We all love our children deeply, but when something like this comes up, there's a division or something that separates you. And so what these PFLAG parents have is this amazing thing where they have to confront something in the relationship and break it open. And as a result, their relationships are really deeper and more profound. I mean, a lot Mm -hmm. of them turned out to be activists and just that was great yeah and what you're saying about parents love I would never question a mother's love for a son but I think the ways that a mother when dealing with a conflict like this of a gay son and what is that all about I think the mother can become very fearful and that fear can come out in negative ways and I think that's the journey for my character is dealing with what I perceive from her as criticisms and judgments and not accepting me and and all of these things and trying to react to that and find what that means to me and just trying to get through it without destroying all the other relationships in my life. I think she has a profound effect on me whether I want to believe it or not. And it's affecting everything I do. So it's about can we resolve it? 
I read those magazines that you have on the table. So, do you have, are you? What? Are, do you have a friend? Yeah, I've got lots of friends. You mean a boyfriend? Never mind. No. Right. Besides the tension with his mom, Elliot's romantic life is a mess. And I think that all comes from just not feeling good enough, not feeling worthy, not feeling like if I truly opened up myself to this person that they would accept me. I think it comes down to fear of rejection. And I think that all goes back to my relationship with my mother. Has she instilled that self-worth in me? And do I feel that if she's not accepting me as a gay man or other elements of my life? And it's also a film about food. How did you prep for that? I did a lot of dumpling folding yeah. <laughs> before we started filming. And I'm actually Japanese-American, so we don't have dumplings. We have sushi. <laughs> so these guys, I, yeah, I folded a lot of dumplings. And I do cook, but not as beautifully as it's portrayed in the movie. <laughs> Why do you hope audiences take away from the film? That it's never too late to discover a whole new world. And it's never too late to confront your deepest fears and to broaden your horizons. And what does writer-director David Owl hope audiences take away? We don't just want to speak to one particular group of people. We do want to find the relationship and sort of the nature of the food and also food, which is obviously very universal. And we want to use those elements to reach out to the more people we can and let other people to see Something a little different on screen, even if it's just uh, skin color or sexuality or things that don't really matter at the end of the day. And it's we all kind of can feel the same emotions and kind of just touch each other in a different way. This has been a conversation about the film Eat With Me with writer-director David Au and actors Sharon Omi and Teddy Chin Culver. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Eat With Me is from Wolf Releasing, Miss B's favorite company. Yes. And it's out on DVD and VOD. Oh, this movie sounds so good. It so makes you want to call my mama. I know. Family never gets old. This is a subject <laughs> we can mine forever and always find something new. Oh, my gosh. And my mom my mom says the same thing. So do you have a friend? Yeah, I got a special friend. <laughs> my mother has moved on. I just have to because she would be so horrified if she thought I was saying dissonant. But my mom has progressed so much since I came out. So I just want to give a shout Your out Your mom to looks her. very hip on Facebook. She, has, she is hip. <laughs> Well, still to come, more with Jessica Stern, Executive Director of Eagleherk, the International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission. And a special reading from Tales of the City author Armistead Maupin. You really want to hear that. The time is now 7.31. We'll be right back, guys. Craig Rodwell, Gay Rights Mogul, coming up now on The Rainbow Minute. Craig Rodwell was born in Chicago in 1940. He came out early in life and moved to Greenwich Village in the 1950s. He became a radical figure in the early gay rights group, the Mattachine Society. Later, he formed the Mattachine Young Adults to increase gay visibility. From 1964 to 1969, he participated in picket lines in front of Independence Hall in Philadelphia every 4th of July. 
to inform passers-by that gay Americans still lacked basic human rights. In 1965, he helped organize a protest against the exclusion of gays from federal employment and the military. He is best known for opening the Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop, the country's first gay bookstore, in 1967. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Reverend Robin Gorslein. Hello, I'm Barney Frank, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974, on KPFK-FM, 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridcrest, China Lake, 93.7 San Diego, or streaming online at kpfk.org. Pride Day Moscow Smoke bomb breaking outdoors to the party Still tells the scene from a gay porno movie Had to come up for some twirling rubber batons A happy Pride Day Moscow Rocket flares like disco spotlights Right here like leather ball on fetish night Marching in with grenades all of a parade A happy Pride Day Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I am Steve Pride. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Ms. Barbecue. And that song coming out of the break was Happy Pride. Yes, Happy Pride Day Moscow happy by Pride Scott Free. Man, no, Happy Pride Day we Moscow. Liked it. We were dancing. It was mm-hmm. awesome, man. I loved but it. We played that particular song in honor of past IMRU guest Nikolai Alexiev, the founder of Moscow Pride. March, which is which attempted its 10th annual step off on May 30th, after which Nikolai and 16 other participants spent 10 days in jail for, you guessed it, promoting homosexuality. And in some countries, pride takes a lot of courage, y'all. And no one explains that better than my friend, Jessica Stern. You heard from her last week. It was a great interview. Amazing. Yes. Let's hear some more. My name is Jessica Stern, and I'm the executive director of the International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission, which has the acronym IGLHRC, which we pronounce as IGLHRC. And what does IGLHRC do? We fight for the human rights of LGBTI people around the world. But lesbian, gay, or bisexual identity may mean something different from country to country or culture to culture, right? In the U.S., We could spend hours probably just on the question of language. What is our chosen identity versus the formal language we use to describe ourselves? 
imagine trying to discuss those complexities at the international level. At Ickleherc, we use the framework of international human rights law to guide a lot of what we do. So we talk in terms of freedom from discrimination and violence based on actual or perceived sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, and bodily status. And we talk about that because we're trying to capture a lot of local nuance. So here we may say transgender, but in parts of Southeast Asia, they might say meti or hijra. When I first started doing this work in Southern Africa, where we were saying dyke or trans in my community in Brooklyn, they were talking about lesbian men. So language varies radically from place to place. One thing that might be of interest to your listeners is increasingly at the when we work with partners across Africa, we hear and respond more and more to those that see intersex rights as a crucial part of our movement and as a new frontier where there's a lot more we can do. So we're talking not only about LGBT rights, but LGBTI rights. I think that that's hopefully going to be a call to action for the U.S. movement as well. So you flee your homophobic country. Where do you go? What's the situation around the world for LGBTI asylum seekers? I don't know a country that does enough for asylum seekers or refugees. There's a spectrum. Some countries are better than others. If a friend of mine needed to seek asylum or become a refugee and they were fleeing persecution based on their sexual orientation or gender identity, more than likely I would suggest they go to Sweden where there's actually ways to have legal status, there's ways to work, there's ways to receive a government stipend while you're waiting. There are systems to support asylum seekers and refugees that I think, for instance, exceed what we offer here in the U.S. But even there, it's incredibly hard. And given what we do at Igleherk, we start from the premise that no one should ever have to leave home. And I know from doing this work for going on 20 years, that frankly, no one ever wants to leave home. The last thing you want to have to do is pick up your life, move to another country where you know no one, maybe face xenophobia, maybe face racism, have to learn a different language, and basically have to start your life again. That said, some people do have to flee. And it is the obligation of the global community to support those people. So I think whether we're talking about the U.S. or Sweden or any country you can possibly imagine, there's much more we should be doing for asylum seekers and refugees. But how do you prove you're gay or lesbian? The way of proving that you faced persecution based on your sexual orientation or gender identity is incredibly complicated and depends on either being able to prove that you were out and you therefore faced persecution, or somehow being able to prove that you are something. And how do you prove that you are something if you lived in an oppressive place and you weren't allowed to be out? I was having a chat with some colleagues last night, and we were just talking about how some asylum seekers and refugees, particularly in the UK, are driven to such desperation that they've started filming themselves having sex as a way to prove, quote unquote, that they're queer, which is a level of degradation and dehumanization that is just astounding. Or we were talking with someone who works on asylum and refugee issues here in the U.S. who was saying that they've heard of 
people who are being questioned in the L.A. County Jail who may want to get into this sort of gay tank because there's been a separate unit established in the L.A. County Jail to help give a little bit more protection to gay and trans folks because otherwise in the general population, they're so vulnerable for physical and sexual violence. And so what are the questions that the prison guards are asking? Well, they're asking if you know the names of bars and clubs in West Hollywood. As though that's how you prove your insider status, by going to bars and clubs in a wealthy part of town. And of course, if you can't name the five greatest places in West Hollywood, then somehow you're not actually gay. The horrific flip side of proving yourself gay is governments, such as Egypt, trying to prove men gay via rectal exams. Well, the notion that rectal exams have a place in the world to quote unquote prove homosexuality is unfortunately it's a more widely held belief than you would imagine could possibly be true. From a human rights perspective, from Eaglehart's perspective, forced anal exams designed to prove homosexuality are not only based on false science and misunderstandings of both the body and sex, But they also amount to violations of people's privacy, and they amount to acts of torture. Because in many instances, when these tests are performed, they are done to dehumanize, and they are done with violence. So one of the things that I'd like to see on my wish list is the abolition of forced anal exams as a means of testing for homosexuality in every country around the world. And one of the good things is that in recent years, I think it was about two and a half years ago, in Lebanon, local activists successfully mounted a campaign and got the government to agree to stop performing such horrific practices. So what it shows is, yes, the practice is still used. I'm horrified to tell you how often I speak with men in particular, and in some cases, transgender women who've been forced to undergo these dehumanizing exams. But it also says that with enough local organizing and enough insistence, the practice can be stopped. Let's talk about media. How do journalists get it wrong? I think culturally, we're all drawn to sensation. So we focus on the car accident. We focus on the tree falling over and crashing into a car. We focus on the horror stories. And I don't know about you, Steve, but I couldn't do the work that we do for LGBT rights without also seeing the good and the ways our community is successfully making change. So I'm really celebrating right now the fact that in Malta, Malta of all places, a small conservative Catholic country, they just passed this heroic law, what is it now, maybe five weeks ago? that follows an example set by Argentina in having the best possible standards for gender identity recognition in the world, which says your gender is determined by how you identify. You do not have to undergo any form of bodily modification, and your gender is determined by your own knowledge, your own experience. You don't need someone to medicalize you to say who you are. So Malta not only did that, But it also introduced new legal precedents for recognition of intersex people. And it has this gorgeous language that basically says everyone has the right to a gender identity. 
And it's really quite stunning. So I wish more people were looking at Malta, which has in recent years gone from having almost no laws recognizing LGBT rights to having some of the best in the world. And I'm personally very interested in what's happening in the Philippines. So we at the International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission are very active in a campaign with a range of community groups in the Philippines pushing for a federal non-discrimination law. The fight has been going on for, believe it or not, 16 years. So, you know, I'd be joking if I said to you that this has been an easy struggle. But the truth is the community in the Philippines has a real chance of getting a federal non-discrimination law by the end of 2015. So if your listeners out there believe in putting good vibes out into the universe, I think we should all be sending good vibes and solidarity to the community of brave activists in the Philippines. So what's the best and the worst place to live if you're LGBTI? Whenever someone asks this question, depending upon the day, the month, the year, I could answer it in a million different ways. But I always come back to the same concept. The laws on the books are just one part of the story. The reality of how you live and whether you have support from your family, whether you can go to work free of discrimination, free of fear, whether you can walk down the street by yourself or with your partner without having to look over your shoulder and see if you're going to get jumped, that is something that cannot easily be defined. So I would say there is no best place on earth. There is no worst place on earth. I think we are always in the process of trying to assert our rights and reach a higher standard. The worst place on earth to be LGBTI is where you're unsafe. The best place to be LGBTI is where you have all of the things that make you feel validated, that make you feel that your dignity is respected. It's where you have home, where you have family, where you have friends and work and political participation. And I wish I could say there was that queer nirvana. I wish I could say I knew where that was. But I think for all of us, it's just home. It's what we're trying to do in our local communities and in solidarity with other people. And if you're a rich white gay man of a dominant faith who has his full health and all of his teeth and all kinds of other trappings of privilege, and you are a young person, a person of color, a person who's gender nonconforming, a person with health issues, you can be living in the same community and it's like you're living in different countries because your safety and security and your rights and your benefits don't look the same. This has been a conversation with Jessica Stern, Executive Director of Eagle Herc, the International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission. Find out more online at eagleherc, I-G-L-H-R-C dot org. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Steve, I am reminded when she was talking about the laws are just part of the story. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm reminded of what Kate Kendall said when I asked her about 
if so we get marriage is that it or we you know are we done she's like oh no no oh, no, no no we're so far from done mm-hmm. laws mean nothing first of all without will to enforce I mean, them just look at black american civil rights yeah laws change but the attitudes of the police do not the laws can often bring about a social change but very still, often there's a back and forth exactly and still it still goes deeper than that it's a constant surrender and change on that she was amazing on there's no one best place to live being an LGBT person, you know, where, where your dignity is respected. I yeah. love, love. That's I'm, the goal, I'm living, isn't it? I'm living for Jessica Stern, hun. <laughs> Come back. Yes. So, Steve, you said you wanted to close tonight's Pride edition of IMRU with something from Armistead Maupin. Correct. Letter to Mama from More Tales of the City was originally published in 1977 in the San Francisco Chronicle. It served as a coming out letter for the character of Michael Tolliver and for the author whose parents read the column. It's become a classic. So here's our friend, Armistead Maupin, reading his and Michael's Letter to Mama. Dear Mama, I'm sorry it's taken me so long to write. Every time I try to write you and Papa, I realize I'm not saying the things that are in my heart. That would be okay if I loved you any less than I do, but you are still my parents and I am still your child. I have friends who think I'm foolish to write this letter. I hope they're wrong. I hope their doubts are based on parents who loved and trusted them less than mine do. I hope especially that you'll see this as an act of love on my part, a sign of my continuing need to share my life with you. I wouldn't have written, I guess, if you hadn't told me about your involvement in the Save Our Children campaign. That, more than anything, made it clear that my responsibility was to tell you the truth that your own child is homosexual, and that I never needed saving from anything except the cruel and ignorant piety of people like Anita Bryant. I'm sorry, Mama. Not for what I am, but for how you must feel at this moment. I know what that feeling is, for I felt it for most of my life. Revulsion, shame, disbelief, rejection through fear of something I knew even as a child was as basic to my nature as the color of my eyes. No, Mama, I wasn't recruited. No seasonal homosexual ever served as my mentor. But you know what? I wish someone had. I wish someone older than me and wiser than the people in Orlando had taken me aside and said, You're all right, kid. You can grow up to be a doctor or a teacher just like anyone else. You're not crazy or sick or evil. You can succeed and be happy and find peace with friends all kinds of friends who don't give a damn who you go to bed with. Most of all, though, you can love and be loved without hating yourself for it. But no one ever said that to me, Mama. I had to find it out on my own with the help of the city that has become my home. I know this may be hard for you to believe, but San Francisco is full of men and women, both straight and gay, who don't consider sexuality in measuring the worth of another human being. These aren't radicals or weirdos, Mama. They are shop clerks and bankers and little old ladies and people who nod and smile to you when you meet them on the bus. Their attitude is neither patronizing nor pitying, and their message is so simple. Yes, you are a person. Yes, I like you. Yes, it's all right for you to like me, too. I know what you're thinking now. You're asking yourself, what did we do wrong? How did we let this happen? Which one of us made him that way? I can't answer that, Mama. 
In the long run, I guess I really don't care. All I know is this. If you and Papa are responsible for the way I am, then I thank you with all my heart, for it's the light and the joy of my life. I know I can't tell you what it is to be gay, but I can tell you what it's not. It's not hiding behind words, Mama, like family and decency and Christianity. It's not fearing your body or the pleasures that God made for it. It's not judging your neighbor except when he's crass or unkind. Being gay has taught me tolerance, compassion, and humility. It has shown me the limitless possibilities of living. It has given me people whose passion and kindness and sensitivity have provided a constant source of strength. It has brought me into the family of man, Mama, and I like it here. I like it. There's not much else I can tell you except that I'm the same Michael you've always known. You just know me better now. I have never consciously done anything to hurt you. I never will. Please don't feel you have to answer this right away. It's enough for me to know that I no longer have to lie to the people who taught me to value the truth. Mary Ann sends her love. Everything is fine at 28 Barbary Lane. Your loving son, Michael. That meant so much to me back in 1977. And to be here in this studio and hear Armstrong Maupin read the letter to me mm. is probably the highlight of my career here at IMRU. Yeah, it's, it, it's so poignant. It's still poignant now that it it's was back then. It's as true it, it, as it ever was. Yeah. Do you think he'd mind if we asked our listeners or just gave them permission to just copy it down and send it to their families freely? Yeah, sure. I mean, <laughs> he, I mean, a lot of people have. I've thought about doing it myself. It's, it's amazing. It's beautiful. It's classic. It's universal. And it's perfect for pride. Yeah. Exactly. Well, in the words of Vosh Bodhi, apple pie, apple pie. Apple pie. Right. <laughs> exactly. We love you, Vosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the end of our ride. Gather your personal courage. Take Tim the Politicos by the hand and exit to the far left of the tram's forward motion. Our thanks to tonight's director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, coordinating producer Steve Pride. And our assistant in there doing our social media, Mr. That's right. Winslow Jones. Hey. Winslow. And of you. course, our Rainbow Minute producers, Jed Proctor and Brian Burns. Now you know you can follow us on IMRU Radio, where the link to the latest show is posted by noon Every th- that's, every Tuesday. That's Facebook. Uh, oh, sorry. That's did, Facebook girls. Did I say Facebook? Yeah. You can follow us on Facebook at Armory Radio. You can follow us around town if it's you want. It's hard to easy. <laughs> I'll have to get a restraining order. I'll have to get a restraining order. Armory Radio, y'all. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and remember, you can financially support KPFK anytime using your cell phone to donate $10. Just text KPFK at 20222. You don't I'm, have to wait till the next fund drive. Although one is starting in five. Four, three. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. He's kidding. He's kidding. Right, he's kidding. He's kidding. But it's another device you have to keep track of. Exactly. I'm so sorry. But we close tonight's show with a pride anthem called Pride. Great name. Written and performed by John Gilbert Levitt. Good night. Good night, guys. Boys in the band play the Bittler Sangles Bathhouse Days. Dance loud, game proud. Oscar Wilde Bookstore. Sister George Toonsbury. Tales of the City. And Eda Bryant Village People Studio 54. Queer Nation Maple for AZT Amendment to Cracker Barrel
hell, angels in America, Washington D.C. Greg Lukin and Selton John, George Michael, what is going on? Live it fair, quiet girls, spend the day at Disney World. Dads here, the McVeigh kids, Ian, Ellen, Will and Grace. Matthew Shepard, God bless you, what else can we look forward to? Here I come, Vax, Jen, another Bush in Washington, Millennium March. Mary Jane and clear as oak. Dr. Laurel's evil ways, bug chasers, ex gays, 9 11, Mark Bingham, Father Michael Judge. All its thoughts of Mary Stram, Beanie Mary Amadam, L. Word, W. is back, we're out for the straight guy. Executions in a ramp, same sex, marriage man, dangerous discussion in a rap. One step forward, two steps back. Crystal Meth, PNP, Mark Foley, Jim McGreevy, John Amici tells all. Doogie Howser, Lance Bass, Broke Back, Superman, Rufus does Judy at Carnegie Hall. Barry Craig, Vice Squad, Mahmoud Madini, John Dumbledore, Nutmeg State, Obama wins, so does Pop A. Forty years ago, new and extraveral through a shoe, the rain became a moving and I followed you. Side. Yes, it's back and watch from the side. Watch from the side. 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 Side.